was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to be joined by my guest, off-Broadway impresario Crystal Field. In 1970, she co-founded the Theater for the New City, and ever since then, she has served as its artistic director, shepherding the works of such playwrights as Sam Shepard, Charles Bush, Charles Ludlam and Maria Irene Fornes. She oversaw the theater through four venues, including its current East Village Four Theater Complex. Theater for the New City is now back from the pandemic and in full swing, and make sure to buy your tickets now to its next production, Sometime Child. Crystal is also the creator of several major cultural celebrations, including the Village Halloween Parade, the annual Native American Powwow, and the Lower East Side Festival of the Arts. But before she was an artistic director, she was an actress, a member of the original Lincoln Center Company with Ilya Kazan and Harold Klerman, the Judson Poets Theater, and Andre Gregory's Theater of the Living Arts. She appeared on Broadway in the original productions of Arthur Miller's After the Fall, Eugene O'Neill's Marco Millions, and The Changeling, and off-Broadway in the original run of Maria Irene Fornes's Promenade. So now, without further ado, Crystal Field. Great. So I would love to start by asking you how your interest in theater began. My father was a writer, a published poet. Um, and, uh, uh, and my mother was one of the first women doctors in this country. So you see, I came from a very forward-looking family to begin with, you know? Yeah. Um, and when I was five years old, I began to dance professionally with a woman named Clarina Pinska. And, uh, and that's how I began. I danced with a long silk scarf. My father took me to one of her classes and, um, and I saw them doing their work across the floor, what they call across the floor. Yeah. And, um, and he said to me, oh, you know, who is good here? And what do you think, you know? And I told him. Oh. And I told him which ones I thought were better than the other ones. And, uh, and Clarina was there, and uh, they decided that I was uh, smart enough as far as dance goes, for her to take me on. So mm -hmm. I became her pupil and we and danced professionally with her. Yeah. And, and did you sort of have from an early age choreography or producing or anything like that in mind or? Well, I used to dance. Um, I always danced in a chair. I oh. would sit, I'd be sitting in a chair and their music would be on and my mother would say, would you want to dance? And I'd be dancing, sitting down. Don't ask me why. Uh, that was how I first began. I guess I must have been more like two or three when that was going on. Um, so I, you know, I, I never uh, thought of being a choreographer, though. Not until I was older. I went to the high school of music and art. Uh, you know, I was, I was, uh, I had a scholarship at the New Dance Group when I was a child, and and then at the end of the season, they had a performances for the parents came, and the teacher uh, had um, they all the teachers were professional dancers some of whom were famous. Actually, my dancing teacher's name was Sophie Maslow. 
and she was a very famous dancer. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, she, for some reason, she picked me out to dance to a piece of music. She, oh, she said, what, what does this music remind you of, you know, and I went into a whole thing on leaves flying in the wind and uh, so then she asked me to perform for the, everyone and to the same music and I did and it was quite, you know, I was like, wow, the queen yeah. of everything, right? Yeah. So after that my father put me, he took me right out of modern, because this was modern dance and he put me in a ballet class, which I hated every oh. minute of. Yeah. So that's what happened. So I would love to ask about your training at Juilliard, where you went to college, and what that was like. Well, training at Juilliard, uh, I had uh, Martha Graham. Well, oh. she taught, she taught, and uh, all her her company taught. I don't remember their names, you know. Some of them were really horrible, <laughs> uh, mean, mean, you know, real mean. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, it was good, and that's where actually, that's where I began to, um, I began to do choreography because Louis Horst uh, taught a, 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 a course. Uh, mm -hmm. he, and it was choreography. And actually, you see, I was overweight. Oh. Uh, I've always been overweight since I was a child. I was sort of, must have been born overweight because I have no remembrance of not being overweight. Yeah. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, I almost didn't get into Juilliard except that you had to create a dance in order to, that was the audition. It was you, you showed them a piece of choreography. That, so I, uh, I got in, but they were always very upset with my weight, oh. number one. Number two, they also didn't like the way I danced because it was too romantic. And uh, they tried to get me to not be romantic in my movement. Um, and that's a whole other story. But uh, choreography, so I began to do choreography in that class. And I did very funny, funny choreography and everybody loved it. And so I thought this is interesting. Yeah. And that was how I started with choreography. Yeah. And but then, you know, um, I uh, I was I was working at the new dance group, and at the end of the year, we uh, had a performance or whatever, and um, I did uh, two pieces that I had created, and the, there were two nights of performance, and the first night, the audience was in hysterics, yeah. and the next night, I got no reaction whatsoever. Oh. So I decided that I would take a cl classes in acting so that I could get laughs every night. Yeah. Turned out later that I... Um, <clears throat> that the first night they were all students and the next night were the teachers. So mm. the fact, <laughs> fact that the students loved it and the teachers, I don't know what they thought, but they are, you know, no mm. reaction. So meanwhile, I started to study acting and I got so interested in acting, I, I left dance for acting. And as a matter of fact, I... I went to, uh, I only have an associate degree from oh. Juilliard. I have a two-year degree from Juilliard. And the other two years, I went to Hunter College. Oh, and I majored in philosophy. And I have a degree from Hunter in philosophy. But meanwhile, I was studying acting. 
Yeah. First with somebody named Dennis Martin when I was uh, first starting out, and then and then somebody called Paul Mann, M A N N. Yeah. Um, a wonderful. Both of them were teachers, and then you know, uh, the first two years. The first year with Paul Mann, you were not allowed to get a job in acting. And you only learned the Stanislavski technique, although he was from the Vakhtangov school, which is not the same as, quite the same as Stanislavski. Um, it's more, uh, it's, I won't say it's more stylized, that would not be the right word, but it's, um, it's a much more conscious form of acting. Yeah. Than, than the pure Stanislavski. So, um, anyway, the first year, all you learned was action towards an objective and super objective and all of that, and you weren't allowed to get a job. Then the next year, you had to get a job, oh. any kind of job acting. You, you could be an intern, you know, or you could get a real job for pay and... So I got a job as an intern in uh, the Mount Kitschko Playhouse, and I did Hatful of Rain, and I had a wonderful time. Anyway, yeah. uh, I studied with him for seven years, oh. and uh, at, in the beginning, you can't do you the first year. You're not allowed to do a play. You have yeah. to do improvisational uh, etudes, uh, learning what is an what is an action and what is an objective and what you know. So you do that. Then the next year after that, the next two years, you can only do American plays, um, easy American plays like Boy Meets Girl yeah. or stage door canteen, you know, plays very simple. And later on, the other next few years, you begin to do much harder plays. You can do Odette. Then you begin to be able to do O'Neill. And finally, in your sixth and seventh year, you begin to write your own work and perform it. Uh, meanwhile, you're supposed to be working as an actor. So, meanwhile, we, you know, we began to get jobs and we get began to get, you know, the next year after being an intern, the next year I got a job in a non-equity company, and then later on I got a job in an equity company, and one of the ways I got that job in the Mount Gretna Playhouse was that I could do choreography because oh. they did musicals and I choreographed the four musicals. I choreographed Plain and Fancy, Say Darling, oh. um, you know, I don't know, a bunch of musicals. And the year before, I had choreographed in a non-equity company. So, you know, one thing leads to another. Yes. And, and uh, so then, you know, uh, I was working then. I was working and actually making a living in the theater. Yeah. Uh, and then um, Barbara Loden, who was in my class at Paul Mann, uh, she asked me to help her because she wanted to join <clears throat> the Phoenix Theater which at that time was a very important uh, non-profit theater company. And so she asked me to rehearse with her um, and take the audition with her. So I did. She didn't get into the company, but she recommended me for a part in Splendor in the Grass. Oh. Um, she was in with Kazan, yeah. so uh, I got that part, and we did the movie that was 
one of the joyous times of my life. Um, there were a number of joyous times, but that was a big one. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, from there, Paul, uh, the Lincoln Center was decided they were going to have an acting company who was going to be the first resident acting company in the United States of America. Yeah. And they uh, wanted people to be in their training program and then go into the company. So they asked the important famous teachers, acting teachers, to recommend certain students. And I got recommended. Oh. Uh, and uh, they took me in. Also, I had just done Splendor in the Grass. So, Kazan and Whitehead were running the Lincoln Center. Yeah. So I got into the Lincoln Center company. But of course, you know, uh, they didn't use us too well. Uh, oh. Some of us they did, but most of us they didn't. We were chorus. But then, uh, but then um, in uh, After the Fall by Arthur Miller, um, the girl who was playing Felice, Zora Lampert, she was a little fragile, oh. and they had her playing a lead in Marco Million. So we used to have repertory. We would rehearse a show in the day and perform at night. It was no big deal for some of us, but some of us, it was too much. So for Zora, it was too much. So they took her out of After the Fall. Now, Felice, Kazan wanted me to play Felice, but, but Arthur Miller chose Zora. So, um, but after a couple of months, Zora couldn't do it anymore because she couldn't rehearse in the day and perform at night too much. Yeah. Um, so, so they gave me the part. And I played Felice for nine months. Wow. And when they did recording, I played the part. And uh, I had a very good time doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. And I would love to ask what it was, what it was like to work with Ilya Kazaman, Robert Whitehead. It was great. Whitehead was a wonderful executive director, and Kazan was an incredibly brilliant director. Yeah. And it was just really very, very much fun and, and very wonderful to, to work with Kazan. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'd love to ask, because I know that you, you mentioned briefly your philosophy degree that you got, and do you think that that has influenced your work at all within the theater? Or Oh, definitely, incredibly, oh. yes. Because I have always uh, been interested in what the play is trying to say. Yeah. A lot of actors don't think about that. Uh, Paul Mann taught script analysis. Um, and like I said, a lot of actors never learn script analysis. Um, it's very important. And he would ask us to decide on what we thought the play was trying to say, on what was the theme of the play. And then he would say, which side of the theme do you think your character is on? Oh. You know? Yeah. Uh, and it was really very interesting. And you began, and and then you know, he talked ma many times about how directors are idiots very often, <laughs> and very often you have to direct yourself. Yeah. So uh, uh, you should never go on stage without having some idea of what you want to say. And you know, Kazan taught me the actor studio method, yeah. which I became very good at. Uh, but my own natural, um, natural, I don't know, presumption was more for the Vaktangov style of yeah. acting, which is much broader and 
has tremendous understanding of what you're doing when you're doing it so that you really know what you're saying when you get on that stage. Um, and it's much bigger. It's really, it's not cartoon, it's not puppetry, but it's larger than life yeah. acting. So I had to learn the other. I had to learn to get small. And as far as film goes, uh, you you can be very small, but film, the camera goes right into you, and you're you you reveal your heart. Yeah. Whereas television doesn't do that; it's very flat, and it's a very boring. To me, it's a very boring form. Yeah. It's a very boring medium, and what's even more boring is Zoom. Oh. That is so boring that it's almost painfully boring. Uh, and it does not require both the Vaktagov school and the actor studio school require a tremendous amount of feeling and your yeah. own feel. And even though they're two different styles of acting, and they're two different philosophies yeah. of acting. They are still both, what shall I say, very relevant. Yeah. And the trouble with the actor's studio is that they think there is no other style of acting except theirs. Oh. But I come from a dance background, and I know, I know that there is dance acting, which is very different from stage acting, from, from theater acting, yeah. which is very different from actor studio acting. Actor studio acting is very good for film. As a matter of fact, the Vaktangov school will not let you do film. Oh. You, you'll throw the camera out of, out of the room, so you don't want to use that style of acting for film. But the actor's studio style of acting is perfect for film. But you will notice that most of the really, really good film actors and actor's studio actors, and I'm not talking about the vast majority of actor's studio actors, I'm talking about the best ones. Yeah. The best ones really can do both. They do do both. And they often have to be, uh, you know, muffled a little. Not muffled is a bad word because they're really not muffling you. They're just making you get smaller. Yeah. Smaller, but when you're small, you can't project. So it's no good for stage. Yeah. But very good for film where you don't want to project. But your feelings, your in, in, inside feelings, are right out there. So yeah. they are also in the Tango school. It's just that you're projecting them. Instead of just feeling them, you're sending them out in a certain way. So anyway, and dance is different, and puppetry is different, and yeah. street theater acting is yet another style, another style of acting. Street theater acting is a kind of combination of acting um, and puppetry and dance. It's a kind of combination of puppetry and dance. Yeah. yeah. I, I was up in all these different styles, and I love them all. And they're yeah. all good for different things. But if you go to uh, most people who are involved in any one of these styles, they will tell you that all the other styles are no good and theirs is the only one, you know. Yeah. And they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I would love to ask you to elaborate a little more on the street theater acting that you were mentioning and what that is like to do. Well, theater acting is as close to the Vakhtangov school as you can get, but it's actually bigger than the Vakhtangov school, but not quite as big as dance. Yeah. Um, 
It's a combination, really, of dance and puppetry. Uh, it uses cartoon, cartoon-style acting, and it is uh, at the far end of Vakhtangov, where you really don't step out on that stage without saying something. You are literally proselytizing about something when you get on that stage. So it affects the style that you perform in, and it affects your relationship to the audience. You have a profound relationship to the audience. You and the audience are one. And as a matter of fact, when you do street theater acting, a lot of times you actually get off the stage and get into the audience. and literally act with the audience. So, um, you know, we, uh, I come from the Judson Church uh, School of of Theater, not School of Acting, School of Theater. I did, I, while I was even in Lincoln Center, I was performing at Judson Church. Judson Church is known for its radical radical views and it's welcoming to so many alternative philosophies and political, uh, you know, and it was always in the forefront of whatever we, whatever we were fighting about, whatever we were asking for. I mean, uh, and Theater for the New City is really a child of Judson Church. Oh, yes. Because I, I was going to ask um, how you think that these sort of visionaries who you worked with influenced what you then tried to do when you started your own theater? Well, I worked for La Mama. I worked for, uh, I was in plays at La Mama for, um, what's her name? Oh, God. Oh, Ellen Stewart? Ellen Stewart, yeah. She called me one of her babies, you know, she was mama and I was one of her babies. And uh, I, you know, she was a wonderful person, lovely person. And she struggled. I I was an actress when she was struggling as a producer. When they closed her down for fire regulations. and, And I worked with the Living Theater when yeah. they were struggling and they were being thrown in jail for non non payment of of taxes and yeah. they had to go off to Europe and, and uh I was there the night that uh I don't know it was the FBI or the or the or, or the Secret Service or the or the IRS closed them down. They were closed, and we all came in through the window, climbed up the ladder, and did a show inside. The New York Times was there to cover it. It was pretty wild. Yeah. They they were taken. They did a sit-down and got taken to jail. I didn't. I was uh, an onlooker. Oh. But... Anyway, you know, we fought for black power. Yeah. Forty years ago. I mean, if you think these things get done overnight, they don't. Yes. Things improve a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then sometimes there's a sea change, but only because you've been pushing and pushing and pushing for so many years. Um, I think there's a sea change now. But the fight for for this has been going on for many, many years. Yes. And it came with the question of, uh, you know, LGBTQ plus. Oh, my God. When we first... um, we did uh, theater for the new city. Homosexual uh, um, could be beaten to death, yeah, without repercussion. People used to carry bats, and they yeah. would bash in a 
person's head. Yeah. Uh, I mean, can you imagine the homosexuality was illegal? No. You go no. to jail. Um, and because you could go to jail, bad people could beat the shit out of you and kill you. And there would be no repercussions. Yeah. We, that whole battle, either for the new city, was very, very mixed up in that whole battle. Oh, yeah. Uh, and anyway, that's, we've all, I've always been in the middle of battles for one thing or another. I was always overweight all my life. When I was, and I was always in the art. And of course, in the art, you know, you were supposed to be thin. That was, yeah. <laughs> that was it. So when I was about, I think I, well, I was old enough to climb the jungle in the park in the playground. Yeah. And so I don't know how old that was, maybe eight, something like that. And I, and I, and I knew there were some kids up in the top of the jungle gym and I climbed up and, and this boy who was above me and the, he said, you can't come up here. And I said, why? He said, because you're fat. Oh. So I went home and I told my mother yeah. And I don't even know what she said, but I don't remember what her answer was, but it it had to do with, you know, he's an idiot. Yeah. Uh, but I, I went back to the playground and I saw a girl across the way was fat and she was with her mother and I yelled out, you're fat. <laughs> Don't ask me why. And so the mother said, well, you're not so thin yourself. But that was... <laughs> and then I had a bad experience in kindergarten. Oh. Uh, was all the... In kindergarten, all the girls were being... Uh, because the teacher told the story of Sleeping Beauty. Oh. And all the girls were allowed to lie down I don't know what she had there for them to lie on, but <laughs> at, we were able to lie down and the boy come and give us a kiss and wake us up. Yeah. We would be asleep. So one after the other, they said they wanted to do it and they did it. And then I said, oh, I want to. And the teacher said, the teacher said, no, you can't. And I, and I said, why? And she said, because you're too fat. Oh. Too fat to be sleeping beauty. So you can imagine, uh, you know, you think you complaining about teachers now. <laughs> you, you don't know what the schooling was like. Yes, public school in those days. I, I, in seventh grade, I had a teacher for the first time. We were taking science. She taught us that the world was created in seven days, and she didn't believe in evolution. That was our science teacher, Miss <laughs> Mahoney. You can imagine, you know, things are much better now. Yeah. And things are much better for everyone yeah. now. But, you know, you wouldn't know it from listening to people. Yeah. Um, which is okay, you know, because even if they're better, that doesn't mean they're good. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's right. they be improved greatly. But yeah. I do wish that people would appreciate that they have made some victory. Yes. You know, now for the first time, we're really talking about, you know, uh, talking about people who have drug problems as have having a medical problem and not, they're not criminals. And, yeah. I mean, it's a whole other way. Claim but, your victories. If yes. you don't claim your victories, you're never going to have any more. Yeah. yeah. So, um, the old days when we were fighting uh, the whole nuclear thing and yeah. we were trying to get governments to say that they would ban nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the one of the things that we talked about over and over is 
you know, don't don't say that, you know, we're all going to die. Because if we are all going to die, then why bother? Yeah. You know, claim your little, claim your victories and then go on and get another one, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So I would love to ask, since you were talking about um, the Living Theater and La Mama and how they sort of faced financial struggles, um, how did you avoid or avoid sort of debilitating struggles with the theater for the new city? What was that? Well, we have, we're, we're struggling every minute at theater oh. for the new city. Uh, you know, we can't pay people what they should get paid. I mean, people say, we want to get $15 an hour. Yeah. I don't get $15 an hour. <laughs> and we don't have the money to give anybody anything. So, you know, we are struggling all the time, and we, our equipment is old. Yeah. You know, our stuff, every computer we have is way old. Uh, all the furniture here, including all the desks and chairs, they're all donated. Yeah. They're yeah. all, they've all been donated by different groups and people or, or materials to arts. Uh, my desk was built by Alex Bartenev. He built my oh. desk. Very good carpenter, among other things. But you know, we 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 do shows on no money. Yeah. And it's a shame because we would know very well how to spend a decent budget. Yeah. But we don't have one. So, no, it's. We are constantly struggling. The thing that I did learn, though, when I worked for La Mama, yeah, very much for La Mama, what I learned, what I learned working at TLA, the Theater of the Living Arts in Philadelphia, run by Andre Gregory, yes. who was fired by the board by his board, and working at Lincoln Center for Kazan and Whitehead, who were fired by their board, I learned that you got to be careful what board you pick. Yes. And our board is wonderful. I have a wonderful board. Of course, they don't have any money. <laughs> That's the problem. I don't have any board. Uh, but they work hard. Uh, they just raised $11,000 for the theater well. through a benefit. Love and courage, yeah, but eleven thousand dollars—that that doesn't pay crap. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, but but it's wonderful that they did that, and uh, and they work very hard, and they have connections, even though they don't have money, they do have connections, and that's important. But anyway, that's what I learned. I learned that you got to watch out for your board. You yeah. got to pick the right that's going to support what you want to do, not just give you money to do what you want to do. They have to really want what you want. Yeah. So that's one thing I learned and learned from La Mama, especially, to do two things. One is be very conscious of the rule of the city rules and regulations. Oh. Because if you're not, you're going to get closed down. Yeah. And if you are, you won't be closed down. You, you've got to have two exits. You've got to have your fire regulations. You've got to have your, the, you've got to pay your taxes. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to, you abide by the city's regulations, and they're not that hard to abide by. Yeah. Otherwise, you're finished. Yeah. So that's something that I, I really did learn also. Also, the regulations are really not stupid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, before I ask you about how the Theater for the New City started, I would be curious to know about one more show you did as an actress, which was Promenade. Oh, that was out of Judson Church. Oh. Um, 
Marie Irene Fournette wrote Promenade, and she and Al Carmines did the music for yeah. it, and I was working at Judson, and so she just, I just did, I was in it, and she came in one day. She wrote Promenade as we were performing, as we were oh. working on it. We worked on it, and she wrote it at the same time. And she came in one day to rehearsal, and she said, I'm going to write a song for you, Crystal, and I'm going to write a song for, I can't remember her name, an, an actress whose name I don't remember, a very lovely person. Um, and I'm going to write it not only for you, but about you. Oh. So come and talk to me all about yourself. So I came up to her apartment and I told her everything I could think of. Yeah. And, uh, and she also fitted me for a costume. Oh. And so she wrote a song. The cigarette song was written for me and about me. Well, and uh, it was a joy to sing. Oh, Gretel Cummings was the name oh. of the other actress, and she wrote a song for Gretel. I was there when you were not. You were there when I was not. Don't love me, darling, because I might stop loving you. Yeah, that was Irene's great gift was for uh, ambivalence. Yeah. She understood the ambivalence of people. Yeah. People are ambivalent about everything. And ambivalence is not hard to act, but yeah. it's very hard to act if you're going to be a slave to a style of acting because ambivalence has to do whether you're that you can like something and hate something at the same time and that is <laughs> that is not in the syllabus of acting style it's not in the syllabus of Vakhtangov, it's not in the syllabus of Actors Studio either. Yeah. But it exists, and it's a form of human nature, and it's a very important part of who we are. And if you can't act it, you can't do Irene Fornes' play. Yeah. So, you can act it, you can act her. She was always very tough with me. I had to, you know, she, you know, her method of, you know, the actor's studio method of, of dealing with me was to make me smaller, 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 more internal, internal, smaller. Whereas with, with Irene, it was more of don't act, don't act, don't act. Oh. Don't act. Do anything. Yeah. Don't, don't act. And that's a form of acting. It's a style. Yeah. It's a style that comes from a philosophy. All these styles of acting come from different philosophies of yeah. life. And, you know, I, I mean, I made it my, I love to act in different styles. And I actually kind of put myself in the service of well, I can't remember his name. Um, the Theater of the Ridiculous. Charles, oh, Charles Ludlam? Not, uh, not Charles Ludlam, although we did the work of Charles Ludlam. Oh. Not Charles Ludlam. Actually, Charles Ludlam came out of the Ridiculous Theater Company. And I think one of them was the Ridiculous Theater Company. Oh, John Vaccaro, that was oh. his name. V-A-C-C-A-R-O, John Vaccaro. He was the father of Charles Ludlam. Oh. Charles Ludlam broke away from, I can't remember whether one, one was called the Ridiculous Theater Company, 
And the other was called Theater of the Ridiculous. I think Vaccaro was Theater of the Ridiculous. Anyway, I put myself in service then because I wanted to learn that style of acting. That's a whole other style of acting. Yes. Wild darlings. <laughs> it's a wild style. Yes. It's um it's its own thing and it's got its own philosophy and it comes out of the gay community. Yes. It comes out of the queen, you know, the queen. That's the style of acting. Yeah. Um and it's very important. And it has a lot to say. Yeah. And I love acting in that style. And um, there are some famous writers who are now dead who wrote in that style. Charles yeah. Ludlam was one of them. I can't remember his name right now. I'm, I am slowly remembering. but. Oh, yeah. And then there's uh, Richard Foreman's style. That's yet another style of acting. They're yeah. all different styles of acting. Yeah, uh, and I've done them all. Yeah, and I enjoy. I, I really enjoy them all in different for different reasons. And I would love to know a little more about Charles Ludlam, who, of course, you worked with. You produced. Well, some... I was never in his company. I no, was never no. in Charles Ludlam's company. We did Eunuch of the Forbidden City. That oh. was his piece. We we produced it, and. And it was wonderful, and he was wonderful, and uh, he was a friend. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know him that well, but yeah. we knew each other very well. From The way I knew Sam Shepard, you know, we were all backstage together at festivals. We saw each other's work, and, you know, uh, yeah. but I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I wasn't in his company. So, um, and there's another wonderful writer whose name I am not remembering right now. What he used to destroy his work when oh. it got too good. It got too popular. Oh, really? He once had a show theater was on Seventh Avenue, uh, around around Fourth Street. Um and it was very successful. And he went in there and threw a stink bomb oh. in the audience. And then he did a show at my at Theater for the New City, which was very popular. Yeah. It was incredible. And he threatened to kill the composer who was at the piano. Oh. The composer fled one night because... Uh, this writer was going to bring in his goons to kill the, <laughs> the composer, and he and he was having an affair with the leading man. Oh. And the leading man was a boy. He was very, very young, very mm. sweet, lovely young man, and and he would he would uh, leave him a message: "I'm killing myself." You know, just before the kid went on stage, yeah. he would get this message. I'm home, I'm in, I'm committing suicide. Can you imagine yeah. the terrible things that people did? <laughs> anyway, yeah. he was a, a wonderful writer. I wish I could remember his name. Yeah. So um, how did the idea for the theater for the new city start? Well, we started because... We were working out of church, and we did a play called Bacula Sabat, which was written by Leon somebody, I can't remember his name, very, very good writer, and directed by Larry Kornfeld, and I played Lucy. Oh. And we got a great review in the New York Times, and everybody, it was a huge hit. And we had been working there for years, and we decided that we would start our own theater. And Larry is really the one that wanted to really start it. And so we, it was Larry Kornfeld, George Bartenyev, 
Theo Barnes and me. And we started, we were given rent-free um, a building in Westbeth. Yeah. On Bank, on Bank Street. And it had two floors. And it was the old, one floor had been the sound stage for the jazz singer. Wow. But well, it hadn't been used in I don't know how many years. It was owned by the telephone company, and then the Kaplan Foundation bought the building and gave us a year and a half rent-free. Oh. So we opened the theater, and we opened it with Dracula Sabat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and what was the original sort of mission statement for the new theater? to encourage new writing to be a place where a writer could feel safe yeah. from censorship. You couldn't touch his work. Yeah. His work was sacred and, and safe. And that was our mission. Because I don't know about the other members, but I had been in a couple of theaters like Lincoln Center and TLA yeah. where the board fired the artistic directors because they didn't like the plays they were doing. Yeah. Well, TLA was Becklec. B-E-C-L-C. B-E-C-L-C. That was her name and she... She was a queen who sat on her subject. And I brought that play there. It was by Rochelle Owen. And it became a cause celebrate in the black community because her, 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 the people that she sat on was a dance company that yeah. was all black. It was an all black dance company that was part of her show. And they were her subjects, and she literally sat on their back. Oh. And uh, I played, uh, a, you know, a secondary lead. Um, it was Mank and Nula. George played Mank, and I played Nula. And we were we were in the thrall of this woman Beckleck, but we really were hated her at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, it was. It became a cause celebrate in the um, in the liberal left wing community. Yeah, and uh, we, we I had a huge amount of audience, but they didn't like it, you yeah. know. Yeah. And uh, they fired him. You know, they said he spent too much money. You know, well, hey, listen, they always have an excuse. Yeah. The board, uh, there was a very famous sound designer whose oh. name I have forgotten. He did all the Broadway shows. And oh, would that be um, Abe Jacob? No. No, okay. Nope. Um. Nope. Um, and he did all the Broadway shows, and we used to, he had a studio. And it when in the beginning of Theater for the New City, we used to go up there at midnight and one in the morning, and we would record for him, if whatever he wanted, if he wanted people screaming or something, you know, we would do his sound effects for him, mm -hmm. and in return, he did the sound effects for a lot of our shows. I still have these sound effects; they're well. fabulous. Unfortunately, they're on old tape. But I never threw them out, so, you know, someday somebody might want to digitize them. They're really, he, he did what you call creative sound effects. Yeah. They weren't straight sound effects. You know, I'd say to him, listen, um, I need something funny. This thing crashed, but I want it to be funny. So he'd give me a sound effect of something falling, and then it would roll, dee, 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 dee. then there would be a little silence, and then you'd hear a little more, dee, 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 you know? <laughs> so 
so in the funny sound effects. So he was able to do that. I mean, he was just... Anyway, you know what happened to him? His board fired him and took all his sound effects designs. And why did they say they fired him? They said he was giving away too many free, you know, like what he did for us. But actually, we paid him in kind. We paid him because we couldn't pay him money, but he got a lot of work out of us. But that didn't, you know, I guess have given away a lot of his free thing. Anyway, that's what they said. Who knows if that's the real reason. That's why you gotta watch that fucking board. Yeah. So, I would love to ask what your collaboration was like in the early days with George Barteniev and Lawrence Kornfeld and your co-founder. Well, started with Lawrence Kornfeld. Kornfeld, K-O-R-N-F-E-L-D. Kornfeld. And Theo Barnes. But actually, um... We had a year and a half rent-free, but behind our backs, they went and tried to rent the space oh. to some video company. Yeah. But we said, we have a lease for a year and a half, and we're not leaving. We're going to sleep here if we have to, and you'll have to drag us out. But Theo and Larry said, no, uh, an artist should not be involved in politics. So they resigned. Oh. So that was after about six months. <laughs> but George and I said, no, no, we're, you know, that's ridiculous. And we're, so we stayed for the year and a half. And yeah. we did have, we had a lease and they couldn't kick us out. And they didn't kick us out. But they had an agreement. So after a year and a half, we went to the artist board at West Beth because at that time they had an artist board quote, running Westmouth, unquote. And we said, Jean-Claude Van Italy found out at a cocktail party that we're going to get $12,000 from the NEA as a grant. Oh. So we're going to give it to you for the next year's rent. So what did they say? They said, oh, no, we don't believe you, number one. Number two, you can't go with something you heard at a cocktail party. And so you're out. After a year and a half, you're out. (laughs) And we're going to rent to this video company. And isn't it wonderful that artists can run a business? So we left. We got the $12,000. Ronald Tavell's company was closing. And they were in a welfare hotel on Jane Street between West and Washington. And they told us about it, and they said, you ought to go there. So we we did. And we gave the 12000 to that hotel, which was a disgusting mess at the top. Uh, but it was a place, and we had two theaters there. We made two theaters. Uh, <clears throat> we gave them the 12000 and the video company had an agreement with Westbeth that if they didn't do $17,000 worth of repair, that the video company didn't have to pay rent. So the video company was at Westbeth for three years, rent-free. So the artists running Westbeth didn't do such a hot job. Uh, Artists as a whole are not really good business people. Yeah. But... But I am, and I can run a business that is not a business. Yeah. And that's how we are able to survive, but it's not fun. It's not good. Uh, It's not a good way to go. I I don't recommend it. Yeah. I... Oh, really what to do if we had a decent we had a decent budget but I'm not willing to compromise I'm not willing to compromise my beliefs yeah. and my philosophy in order to uh, get more money yeah, yeah. so you know 
we do emerging artists, part of our mission, that was our original reason for being, was to support emerging artists, and we do. Some of the work is not so good, some of it is incredibly good, yeah. and that's the way emerging artists go. And uh, once you take a show on, you don't touch it. Yeah. You don't touch it. I had terrible experience at the public theater, everywhere I went. I worked for Joe Papp. Oh. Um, uh, Joe, you know, I uh, was in one play that was really talented. It had a very wild beginning, a very wild ending, and a very romantic middle. Yeah. So they decided to cut out the middle. And I protested and fought against it, but I lost. Yeah. I wanted a theater where even if the middle was not as good, that I wanted to keep it because it was an integral part of what this writer was saying. Yeah. And when you cut it out, you cut out the soft part of that writer, and that writer had a soft part, as well as a wild and hard part. Yeah. So, you know, and and we love work that's not finished, but that has a, a very large canvas yeah. and very high perspectives. Yeah. yeah. Not always successful. Doesn't have to be so successful. Yeah interesting and relevant and about something and full of action and feeling and you know yeah and it doesn't have to be a finished polished piece of work if you're gonna wait around for that you're never gonna get finished polished <laughs> piece of work because finished polished pieces of work don't come out of the blue yeah. they come out of years of struggle it's the same thing as politics you're not gonna, you're gonna wait around for nirvana. It ain't gonna happen. Yeah. It's yeah. the same way with writing or yeah. anything. Yeah. If you can't immerse yourself in the struggle and, and, and hail your little victories, you ain't never gonna get the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what advice would you want to give to someone just starting out in theater? Well, I would say it takes 10 years to make a professional in any, in any kind of theater enterprise. Yeah. It takes 10 years to be a, a real producer. It takes 10 years to be a real dancer. It takes 10 years to be a a number one fabulously trained actor. Uh, it takes 10 years. So yeah. just remember that. And again, no one says you have to go home until 10 years pass by. <laughs> you have to get in there and do your best, but understand that success does not come out of the blue. Yeah. Uh, comes in spurts and pieces and you may be successful but not you may not have the kind of success that you wish you had but yeah. that doesn't mean you won't have success you have to appreciate where you are you know yeah. that's the big thing and you can have high sight you can set your sights high but you also have to appreciate and accept the fact that you're not going to get there. Yeah. You may never get there, but you're going to get somewhere. And somewhere is as important as anything else. Yeah. So that's my advice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by legendary stage and screen comedienne Joanne Worley.
Joanne is perhaps most famous for her TV role in Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. She was also seen on screen in Love American Style, Beauty and the Beast, The Feminist and the Fuzz, and more. On Broadway, she stood by for Carol Channing in the original Broadway run of Hello, Dolly, as well as starring in Grease, The Prince of Central Park, The Billy Barnes People, and most recently, The Drowsy Chaperone. On tour, Joanne tackled roles in Carnival, The Female Odd Couple opposite Sandy Dennis, Annie, the Pirates of Penzance, and much more. You won't want to miss this conversation, so make sure to tune back in next time, and thanks for listening.